Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. In 1849, a 23-year-old man ventured out to find his fortune, joining 40 other men from Prince Edward Island. He put his money in on the purchase of the Fanny, a small brig that would make the journey to California. It was the era of the California Gold Rush, and for this young man, described as stoutly built and light-haired, it was the chance to find adventure. His shipmates were impressed with him, stating he didn't have a lazy bone in his body, and he was a man that would not abandon his purpose. And while the man would not find his fortune, nor would anyone else, he would shape the fortunes of the small island province of Prince Edward Island in only a few decades' time. His name was James College Pope, and he would be the first premier of Prince Edward Island. I'm Craig Baird, and this is From John to Justin. So, after looking at every Prime Minister, every federal election, every Ontario election, every Quebec election, every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, and every single Governor's General, we're now looking at all of the premiers in the history of Canada. And there's a lot, about 280. So, I hope you enjoy this podcast, because it's going to keep going until about 2028. And we begin all of it with our look at James College Pope. Now, we're going to be doing five from Prince Edward Island, then five from Alberta, and so on. I chose all of the provinces randomly, and we're going to be going forward five at a time. So I don't spend a huge amount of time on one single province. And we'll get a good mix of them and a good variety. So I hope you guys enjoy this very long season. James Pope was born on June 11, 1826 in Betacue, Prince Edward Island, the second son to Joseph and Lucy Pope. His father was born in England, and he came over to the island colony in 1817. Before long, he was the most important merchant to the west of Charlottetown. As a young man of 14, James was sent to attend school at Saltash, and upon his return, entered the family business. The young James Pope was inspired by his father, who by the time of his birth, was the third largest shipowner in the entire colony. His father had also entered colony politics in 1830, beginning a 23-year career in the Legislative Assembly. His father was also the Speaker of the Legislative Assembly from 1843 to 1849. And he was also known to be a vindictive man, a trait he would pass on to James. Before James ventured into politics, though, he would take that trip to California. Having returned home without his fortune, diagnosed with what was called Camp Fever, he came back into the family business and established his own store in Summerside. Thanks to his father's political connections, James soon found himself appointed to various minor positions, including the Collector of Customs. This allowed him to slowly build his savings thanks to the 5% on duties he collected as a fee. He would begin to use that money to have ships built, 
which would help the family business and slowly grow the fortune of James. He would eventually sell his shipyards for what would today be $85,000 and $328,000. With this, he began to put money into shares on ships, and between 1853 and 1877, he had shares in 117 deep-sea and coastal vessels, and was the sole owner of a majority of those ships during that time. In his best year, 1864, he registered 12 ships, 10 of which would be sold to buyers in England. During the 19th century, James ranked third in the number of ships and total tonnage among individuals on Prince Edward Island. It wasn't just ships that he was involved in, though. He had a hand in many ventures including retail, real estate, fishing, agriculture, and even ownership of a telegraph line between Summerside and New Brunswick. In 1856, he would purchase the Mann Estate for over $500,000 in today's funds. On his estate, he maintained a large herd of cattle, which brought in more funds for him to grow his fortune. And he would claim at one point that his transactions with one Charlottetown merchant alone was more than the revenue of the entire colony. A newspaper, friendly to him, would write, He keeps hundreds of poor men constantly employed. In 1857, James moved into island politics as a member of the Conservative Party. He was not elected yet, but he was drawn to defending the rights of landowners against the demands of tenant farmers for land reform. A typical rich person thing to do. On June 1st, he won in a by-election in Prince County, the riding of his father. And almost immediately, James developed a reputation in the Legislative Assembly for being belligerent, making accusations against the government, and often getting quite personal in his attacks of the Liberals. Two years after first entering into politics, he was named to the Executive Council under Edward Palmer, the new Premier of the colony. Through this time, James's brother, William Henry, was the dominant force in the family when it came to politics, and James was often in his shadow. William Henry had served as a colonial secretary, and James was often jealous of the ability of his brother to speak forcefully with skill and eloquence. Others would say of James's own speaking abilities. He was a poor talker, and when he did speak, he did not always do so in the most satisfactory manner. As talks of confederation began to arise, the two brothers would take opposite sides on the matter. James would express his doubts over joining confederation, while William was an advocate for the Union. For James, there was no advantage for the island in regards to its economy if it were to join confederation. James would not take part in the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences, and during the debate over joining Confederation that raged through November and December 1864, he voiced his opposition extensively to the Union. James was also a keen observer of the political tides. This was seen when Premier John Hamilton Gray, who supported Confederation, disputed with Edward Palmer, the anti-Confederation Attorney General. Williams sided with Gray, and James, despite not supporting Confederation, did support Gray in removing Palmer from his position. And when the dispute continued to get worse until late 1864, both Gray and Palmer resigned, and on January 7, 1865, James Pope became Premier for the first time. James may have been a keen observer of politics, but there was no indication if he actually wanted to be Premier. He was a businessman, and there's no evidence he actively pursued the post of becoming Premier. As Premier, James mostly focused on being a caretaker and would continue in his opposition to the idea of Confederation. William continued to be an advocate for Confederation, but James stated he was opposed to it because of the details adopted the Quebec Conference, 
which he felt did not give fair terms to residents of Prince Edward Island. On July 1, 1866, his government purchased the massive estate of Sir Samuel Cunard, who had died the previous year. The estate took up 15% of the entire island, and its purchase allowed for 1,000 tenants in 20 townships to become freeholders. In 1866, James also brought forward his No Terms Resolution, which stated that no union with Canada would ever be accomplished. This resolution led his brother to resign from government. At the time, the vast majority of Prince Edward Island residents were actually against union with Canada, and even if James was not opposed to confederation privately, publicly, he would make it a cornerstone of his premiership. Many on the island feared that joining Canada would be forced upon them without their consent. In order to prevent that, James adopted the No Terms Resolution, so there was no room for misunderstanding. Now, the reason I bring up the fact that James may not have been adamantly opposed to Confederation privately is because he refused to send an anti-Confederation delegation to London in 1866 to support Nova Scotia's anti-Confederation delegate, Joseph Howe. When in London himself on private business, James would also make no effort to meet with Howe. He would also convince the delegates at the final conference from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick to support an $800,000 grant from the federal government to buy lands on the island. In September 1866, he sent out a letter to Samuel Leonard Tilley stating that a railway or canal to the island would be something that could persuade the population to join Confederation. So, he wasn't totally against it. Unfortunately for James, the $800,000 proposal was seen by residents of the island as bribery, and it would cause the support of the Conservatives to completely tank. In 1867, the island held its next election, and the Conservatives lost that election. Not only did the anger over the $800,000 proposal hurt the Conservatives in the election, but the fact they were seen as pro-landlord also caused residents to not support the party. Now at the time, Prince Edward Island was divided over the issue of school funding and separate schools. The new Liberal government refused to provide public grants to Roman Catholic education institutions, which greatly angered the Catholics on the island. Meanwhile, James promised to provide aid to all efficient schools open to government inspection, regardless of who controlled them. The entire issue would cause the Liberal government to fall, and James would form a coalition between his party and the Liberals, who did not support the party line with schools. He was able to get the Liberals to his side by promising not to act on the question of schools, nor the issue of joining Confederation, until an election was held. As a result, in 1870, James was once again the Premier of the island, for the second time, and he would focus on the economy with the construction of a railway on the island in 1871. James was always an advocate for quite some time of a railroad on the island, despite its small size. He would speak passionately in speeches about the economic advantages of having a railroad, and said it would bring in huge influxes of tourists. I don't really know how. Frank McKinnon would describe the second government for James Pope, saying, Religion and union being barred, they made the railway their politics. Unfortunately, the railroad construction bankrupted the island, as it cost more than the island's treasury could handle. James's government would fall in 1872, and James would be forced to resign, ending his second time as premier. While the economy of the island was bankrupted, the Canadian government provided a bailout, and this would shift the public opinion of the island towards joining Canada. In 
the Liberal government would go to Ottawa as a delegation to seek terms for the admission of Prince Edward Island into Canada. Ottawa would agree to take over the railroad, provide funds to settle the land question, and assume the debts of the colony. The Liberals then called an election on the proposal, but James and his Conservatives argued that the terms were not good enough for the island, and told residents that if his party was elected, he would get more favourable conditions. He stated he was a personal friend of Sir John A. Macdonald, the Prime Minister of Canada, which was true, and that their friendship would help the island in its move towards joining Confederation. In the April 1873 election, James and the Conservatives won 20 of 30 seats. Once again Premier, for the third time, he approached Ottawa about joining Confederation, and he was able to increase the promised subsidy to the island by an extra $25,000. On July 1, 1873, Prince Edward Island entered Confederation. Two months later, James resigned as the Premier of the province and took a seat in the House of Commons. He would return to the Legislative Assembly in 1875, but then lost his seat in the 1876 election. The following year, he once again returned to the House of Commons, and from 1878 to 1882, he was the Minister of Marine and Fisheries. Overall, he would accomplish little in this post, his nephew would say of him. He was not an office man, nor given to the regular and methodical treatment of correspondence. Most of the time, James focused on matters of patronage, including pushing for his father to be named the Lieutenant Governor of Prince Edward Island. For the last years of his life, James dealt with poor health and growing anxiety over his business losses. His brother had died in 1879, and over the years, his business losses had mounted to the point that his mental and physical health was severely compromised. He would begin to rest in Prince Edward Island after 1881, when he took a leave of absence, where his doctor was future Prime Minister Sir Charles Tupper. By the time he returned, it was felt he could no longer be in the cabinet, as the work was too hard on his health. By 1883, he was legally declared to be of unsound mind, and incapable of managing his own affairs and James would pass away in Summerside, Prince Edward Island, on May 18, 1885, at the age of 58. The Montreal Gazette would write of his passing, stating, The honourable gentleman had been ailing for some time from softening of the brain, and death was not unexpected. Overall, very little would be reported on his death. Chief Justice Sir Robert Hodgson would describe James in a letter to Sir Johnny MacDonald, stating, a man of good, sound, common sense, not highly educated, of indomitable courage, perseverance, and energy, proud and ambitious. I hope you enjoyed that episode of From John to Justin, the first of our premiere series. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's Biography, Library and Archives Canada, Wikipedia, and the Montreal Gazette. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnston. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories, and there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, 
And this is Canadian History X. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.